I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics. C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Well, wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Hi, I'm Shanti. And I'm Lynx. And you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Our guest today is Jenny Boyd. Jenny has led an incredible life. In the 60s, she found herself immersed in the world of rock and roll. Jenny was a model, a muse, a sister to Patty Boyd, if that name sounds familiar, and sister-in-law to George Harrison and Eric Clapton, and wife to Mick Fleetwood. In her 30s, she embarked on a new adventure, earning a PhD in humanities. From there, she authored a book, It's Not Only Rock and Roll, in which 75 of the world's most iconic musicians reveal their thoughts on creating music. She has probed the minds of legends such as Eric Clapton, Don Henley, Joni Mitchell, George Harrison, Ravi Shankar, and many, many more, delving into the drive to create, the importance of nurturing creativity, the role of unconscious influences, and the effects of chemicals and drugs on the creative process. Yeah, she's brilliant. Jenny has also worked in the addiction field, founding Spring Workshops, which brought therapists from the U.S. to the U.K. to facilitate workshops. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to Jenny about her life and career and our mutual fascination with the creative process. This was an incredible, incredible interview. I'm so happy we got to do this. And thank you, Jenny, and I hope everyone enjoys it. Yeah, thank you so much, Jenny. Enjoy the show, and um, we hope you enjoy the amazing stories she tells us. And there's some really special ones in there for music fans and Beatles fans. And make sure to buy her book after. Yes. Bye. 
Jenny, we are so, so, so excited to speak with you. This is actually our first interview of the new year. Ah, that's nice. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to both of you. Yeah, do you you, uh, put any New Year's resolutions out there? Do you believe in that? Yeah, I love New Year's. I love a new year because to me, although it's supposedly just another day, to me it's a whole nother um, chance to do what you really want to do or achieve what you really want to achieve or um, just um, make some resolutions. And I know people say they last all of about a week, but um, I, I love it and I'm doing really well with my resolutions and um, things for this year so um, uh, yeah it's a it's a good start that's wonderful do you care to share any yes um, I've been working on a book a memoir yes. and um, <laughs> for so long and um, I'm finally going to get it published this year I know I am and you know hook or by crook and the way it's going it's looking pretty good so um, that's one big, big uh, thing because, you know, just public, getting a book published, I know from experience um, from my last book, but it just takes a long time. You give it to all these different publishers or your agent does, and, uh, and then you have to wait, you know, two or three months for them to get back to you. So you can end up sort of years going by and you realize you've been waiting. And um, so I'm taking that bull by the horns this year and it'll be out. So exciting. I cannot wait to read this book. Yeah, I'm very excited too, but good. We're so, so happy to hear that because this, uh, stories like yours and people like you are the reason why we started this podcast in the first place because as much as we're interested in rock and roll history, we always want to know the, uh, other side of the story we want to know we want to hear it from the other people who were there the friends the mentors the wives the girlfriends because those stories are so fascinating and i just think that they need to be celebrated well we both think that they need to be celebrated and heard more so can't wait for that i think that's great i think that's great because you know we're all in it somehow we all play some part and um I guess what you're saying is sort of acknowledging people who've been part of it, but probably not like top, top billing, you know. Exactly. They're just as important, but those stories are the lesser heard ones. So it's nice to finally be hearing them. Yeah, and I think um, for me, just um, being very much involved in the music world since a young age, I mean, Mick and I, Mick Fleetwood and I met each other when we were 16, so it's many, many years, and then my sister Patty and George and Eric, and then I had another husband, Ian Wallace, another drummer. Patty had two guitarists, I had two drummer husbands. Um, and, uh, and writing that book, that it's not only rock and roll, was all about um, a whole different side of how people saw musicians and how living with in the whole music world, how they represented not only just all the incredible music, but there was a lot of the other stuff, you know, the drugs, the alcohol, the, you know, um, all the, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll side of things. But, you know, doing this, that book I did and interviewing all those musicians was so inspiring because it was much more spiritual and much more, you know, to them talking about what... Um, we call peak experience and stuff like that and it was like seeing a whole another side 
of what the rock and roll world is about. That's wonderful. We're really interested in that spirituality side as well and those relationships and creativity and just the idea of the muse and where that comes from. And then, yeah, Mm -hmm. thinking about the family histories and the past and going back. So Lynx and I are almost on our 100th episode, very close to the 100th episode here. And back in the episode, the 30s, um, I read your book, but I had the copy that was called Musicians in Tune. Yep. And then I cross-referenced Mick Fleetwood's book, Mick to mm-hmm. see what he said about your relationship and did a little a bit of an episode on that. So to be able to speak to you, you know, uh, like this is such a, such a wonderful experience. And then to be able to hear your book, or sorry, to read your book when it comes out is going to be just such yeah. a wonderful thing. Great, great. So was music always an important element of your life growing up? Well, it was, and I sometimes wonder because we, um, we grew up in uh, East Africa, and I'm sure there were lots of drums being played. You know, it was sort of um, because we'd have um, people who were looking after us who um, were part of different tribes. And but for some reason, I loved the sound of drums. And when we came over to England, I guess I was six years old, six seven years old. And hearing um, rock and roll, because my sister was three and a half years older than me, she was the one that would go out and get the records. And for me, it was like the light bulbs went on. Um, you know, it was like oh, sort of uh, 50s, say 50s rock and roll. And then Elvis Presley and then Roy Orbison. And, and my favorite favorite was Buddy Holly. But music just spoke to me, um, you know, as a kind of rather introverted, pretty confused little kid coming over. Music was what I kind of um, attached myself to. Me and Shanti definitely relate to that as well. And I love that the drums were like always what you, uh, we were attracted to. That's, that's amazing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now I look back on it, I can see it. Yeah. And that steady beat, you know. Ever cool. I think I was all over yeah. the map. Drummer, guitar <laughs> player, it didn't matter to me. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of music and um, listening to those records that your sister Patty would bring home, and thank goodness for that, um, how did the two of you, or how did you find yourself smack dab in the middle of the most important thing to have ever happened to rock and roll? Well, that's the most extraordinary thing about life, is that at the time, you don't think of it as extraordinary. I mean, yes, when Patty was, I was still at school, but when Patty, um, who then had become a model and then got the the part in the Beatles' um, Hard Day's Night, and I remember when she told us that, that was very exciting, but we didn't think, wow, this is going to be um, mega for the next 50 years. You know, it was definitely, we were all in our teens, and this was exciting, and new group, and um, we liked their music. And, and, and it wasn't such a big, huge thing. It was more how fun. Um, and that was from me as a schoolgirl, still going to school. And, um, and then meeting George was just lovely. He was just like your sister uh, introducing you to her new boyfriend, you know, just normal. He looked a little smaller than I thought he was, but, you know, often famous people do, I suppose, Um, except for Mick. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think um, it just happened, and then Mick was the one that would watch me going to school when I was 15, 
and say that was the girl I was going to marry. Kind um, and he was in a band, very small band in Nottingham Gate, and and sort of we slowly got together, and it all seemed to happen pretty much at the same time, and it didn't seem weird. Like oh my god, both me and my sister are both going out with musicians. We ne- it's just we never thought like that because. Everybody just seemed to be clicked in, and the clubs we'd go to and the musicians of that time would all be there. And there was such a feeling of camaraderie and coolness and um, just hanging together. It didn't feel special in any way. It was just, you know, because it's special being a teenager and life is opening up, and, you know, all those things seem to happen at the same time. Do you look back and remember any specific concerts or moments that really stand out now to you? Yeah. Well, the one that really stands out was probably, yes, it was. It was the first live concert I'd ever seen. And it was Mick, and he was in a band called The Shanes. And um, my friend at school knew him really well, and so she introduced me to him. And he was 16 then, and he asked us if we'd like to go and see them play. And it was um, up in North London. And it was the most exciting thing I'd ever seen or heard, just live music. And they would do all the Bo Diddley or Rhythm and Blues, and people were dancing. And um, and I remember that will always be the most special gig that I ever saw. That's fantastic. I was thinking about that on the way here, just how young you were and Mm -hmm. how young he was when that happened and first love. And I remember mine, about 16 years old and a musician. And I was thinking about how much love I still have for that person because there's just nothing like that first one. Yeah, I agree. It's I agree. Yeah. You'd mentioned that um, Patty was modeling, and you yourself did some as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your modeling career? Yeah, I, I never thought I was going to be a model. I never, it never occurred to me to go in that that direction. I was um, thinking maybe more. Cause I used to love to write. I always wrote, loved writing, wrote poems and all sorts of things. And um, but I had this really horrible boyfriend. Friend. I suppose I ought to be careful, really. Yeah, he was. He was horrible. <laughs> and um, But then I was quite frightened of him, and he was a musician, and then he had to, um, the, sort of in between uh, joining bands, he had to do a painting job. And so he was asked to do the showroom of these two designers who were very much on par with Mary Quant called Folan Tuffin. And so they were saying they were looking for a house model. Did he know of anybody? So he mentioned me, and I went to go and have an interview with them. And I started working the next, the following week. I never asked my mum or never mentioned it or anything. I just left school and started working. And so that's how I started. And they were really nice to work for. And um, and when I wasn't sort of doing the, um, showing the clothes, then I'd work in their little boutique in Carnaby Street because the, the showrooms were all in Carnaby Street. And so I met all the people, you know, fashion designers, heads of Vogue and Harper's and all those big glossy magazines. And then uh, gradually one of them said, well, they wanted me to do a photographic graphic shoot. And then, uh, and then it was suggested I should get my, my, um, an agency as well. And that's how I then became more involved in the photographic um, modeling and little films than I did in showing. But when I did show, I remember Patty and I were um, asked to go to New York with a couple of other Mary Quant models. And Patty and I were modeling the fur and tuffing clothes, which were pantsuits for the first time. And, um, 
and all sorts of like really cool clothes. And um, it was we were meant to be doing the catwalk. And these models at that time had spent a lot of money learning how to do the catwalk, how to do it, how to put your one foot in front of the other, and all this stuff. Well, I just couldn't be bothered with that. So when I heard the music, I just danced. Aww. And people weren't doing that then. And so it's that thing, you know, we talk about creativity and self-expression. It didn't suit me to be like a mannequin, but what was my expression as soon as I heard music was to dance. So screw all the other stuff, you know, sort of suddenly I only wanted to dance. So I got quite known for being that model who always danced. And uh, I'd get lots of... Um, commissions along railway stations and, um, you know, um, platforms and, and all over the place. So, um, so yeah, I, I became the one that danced a lot. Dancing to the beat of your own drum. Good for you. Sure. <laughs> yeah, those photos of you and Patty are so adorable. We always... Uh, are, they the ones from, are they the ones from Vogue? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're kind of matching with the lipstick. Yeah. Yeah. Love yeah, that. yeah. That's when she first told me that George had asked her to marry him. Oh. So she looks very dreamy. Yes. <laughs> now, now it all makes sense. <laughs> all right. Links and I are overdue for a little bit of uh, some, some photos done, and so we were thinking maybe of recreating something along those lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you like looking back at those photos? Like, do you like seeing new ones pop up on the Internet and everything? Oh, I love it. I love it. It's, it's so sweet, you know, because it was, it was such, a, such an innocent time. It really was. And so one can only look at it with joy, really, and, and memories and um, just what a, what a sweet time it was. There are whole Instagram pages dedicated to that time and those photos and that fashion and the two of you it's fantastic mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah and I suppose you know things like I found myself in San Francisco well that was all complete um just I don't know just following that same call in a way because when I went to San Francisco I had no idea the uh, hippie stuff was going on that it was um flower power or anything you know I went early uh, 1967 to go and join my friend, help her open up her boutique. And there I was smack bang in the, be- in the beginning of all of that. So it was like had another view, but across, across the Atlantic, of what was changing. And then how music brought it all together. And then music from across the Atlantic sort of brought it together. And, and um, music was so important at that time in as much as you know, you'd wait for the next Bob Dylan album to come out and you'd listen to every word and, and the Beatles or you needed love, you know. It was um, it was sort of, it's like that thing I was saying in, in my book is that musicians speak for the masses. That's so true. And especially back then in the 60s and everything, it definitely was all tied together by the music. Yeah. I feel like that's yeah. something we're kind of missing nowadays. I mean, it's still there in some, somewhat, but not, not in the way that it was back then. Yeah, and I don't know that because I'm not, you know, one of the young things. But, I mean, I have grandchildren who are young, but it doesn't seem like it's the same thing. No, that was definitely, like, a specific magical time. Yeah, it really was magical. Yeah. It was like that feeling, I think I can only compare it to, it's that, it's that feeling of being in the zone. You know, you're in the zeitgeist. 
and you can't not be there because somehow you were just sort of drawn to it. It seems that spirituality is quite important in your life. You mentioned in the, the book, like dreaming the same things as Patty and having a psychic bond. Do you still experience similar things like that? Um, not so much. Not so much. I mean, I, I'm still a meditator, and um, but as far as and dreams, sometimes there'll be a lot of synchronicity. Um, but I think Patty and I were so 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 close. We're still obviously very close, but we were so connected. And when I had my sort of what I called spiritual awakening, when she and George were in um, in India, they'd had exactly the same thing at the same time. So all that sort of stuff was very powerful at that time, and that was part of that zeitgeist that I was talking about. You know, it's like part of that, just getting into that zone. And you and went, it's like it was a subculture, really. You went to India with them in 1968, is that correct? Yeah. And was that the first time that you had experienced meditation? Yes, well, I went with them to um, Bangor in Wales, so I was initiated with everybody else. And then I was, because um, we didn't go to India for another three months, so while I was waiting to go to India, I was meditating, like we all were, and I was working in the Apple, um, the Beatles shop, Apple, and um, and there was lots of sort of Indian posters and uh, um, trinkets, and, every, you know, India played a big part, as it did in San Francisco. And so I had meditated, but I hadn't done long meditations um, such as we were doing in India. Wow. Do you have any favorite memories about being, from being there? Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. Yes. <laughs> um, so I was doing long meditation, and sort of halfway through the night, I started developing a fever. I mean, just literally just boiling hot. And I went to go and find Maharishi and uh, finally found him, woke him up, and he just said, oh, no, 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 you just got to keep keep meditating, it'll go. And so I carried on sitting on the floor, leaning against my bed, and then Patty came in to see if I wanted any breakfast with her. And she took one look at me and called for the doctor, and, uh, and the doctor came along. We were miles out from anywhere. The doctor, the ashram doctor, came along from Delhi or somewhere and, uh, and said, um, yeah, you've got tonsillitis, oh. which is sort of weird, you know, in, in India. And, but um, anyway, so I stayed in bed and sort of feeling terrible. And then it just so happened another doctor came by. Um, I don't know why, but uh, he came to see me. And, of course, it was dysentery, which is very common to have in, in India. Oh. So while I was recuperating and uh, in bed for a few days, John Lennon and, and Cynthia came in to see me, amongst other people would come and visit. And John had done this lovely drawing for me. And uh, it was of um, um, a sort of holy man with a um, turban on his head, and he's sitting cross-legged, and he's playing a flute. And there's a basket and a snake sort of coming out. And underneath he'd written, by the power that's in and the power that's out, I cast your tonsil lighthouse out. Love, John and Sin. Um, so um, that was a lovely memory, you know, just so sweet. And that's how close we all got, you know, just, um, just very, very sweet. Yeah, that experience must have been really incredible, especially being so young and so together like that. Yeah, I could have I could have just stayed there, I think. 
you know, it was so incredible. It was just like, this is what I'd been searching for in San Francisco. This is what I'd been searching for before. That's where it was. It wasn't in the drugs, you know, it wasn't in taking the acid or anything like that. Um, yes, this is yeah. where it was. Mm. So you have been passionate about exploring the creative process, and we are passionate about exploring the physical person, the muse. What makes this thing that we both have in common so fascinating to people? Like, why have we embarked on this long-term journey to uncover the source of inspiration? Well, I think that creativity is, and it sounds so sort of mundane in many ways, but it's not, is that thing of self-expression, the self, the inner self. It's expression, and it's being who you are. And I think that um, not only that, but along with that, it seems to add the, um, the mystery of life as well. So writing that book and talking to all those musicians about their creativity, and every single one of them was aware of it being a sort of mystical experience. And for me, that um, self-expression has sort of been the journey of my life. And it's about, which is also about being able to express oneself creatively. And I think a lot of people often think they're not creative, but I think everybody's creative because everybody is unique and everybody can express who they are in some way. Yeah, it's interesting how it, it comes out of everyone differently, yet at the source of it, it's, it's always this unexplainable kind of energy that's just within. Yeah, and, and there's a magic about it, too. There's so many sort of extraordinary synchronistic things that can happen. And it is very spiritual. You had mentioned... And it's very exciting, you know, the... the sorry. The, oh, um, go ahead. You, but, the, you know, when it's very exciting when you've actually written a poem. I, I, about three years ago, joined a singing-songwriting group. And, um, and it's so exciting when you've actually written something that just has come from nowhere and then suddenly you have it. It's like the biggest high there is. And it's like capturing a moment in that in that song or in that piece of poetry it's it's like yeah. a photograph but it's it's like self-expression of you in that in that specific moment yeah and a lot of the time people talk about and i've experienced is that feeling of Ooh, where did that come from you know and it might just be one line and it, yet it's perfect you can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything you might shop while working eating or even listening to this podcast and however you shop we all know and love the thrill of the hunt but do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals because Rakuten shoppers do with Rakuten they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back and you can get it too start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora Nike and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in and getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Yeah, and it, yeah, it can be perfect. Um, mm-hmm. You had mentioned that there are some people, and you know, many people, who think, "Well, I'm not creative," and I wonder because everybody is born creative, and you look at children, they're they're totally creative, and yeah. I do wonder yeah. at one at what point where where's the block, where's the stoppage, where's the when is that creativity, you know, stifled? And people, yeah, people should really be encouraged to have that self-expression that's it and treat it like play you know just like children do they don't think about oh i feel a bit blocked today you know they'll just go and do they'll play and they'll make things and it's just keeping that childlike part of you there well, there's a New Year's resolution if I ever heard one. If anybody's listening and mm-hmm. like, mm, what's my New Year's resolution? Mm-hmm. Tap into your inner <laughs> child, inner play. <laughs> it's true. Like when you're kids, you're not thinking like if I make a mistake, it's a bad thing. It's just whatever comes out, comes out. And I, maybe that's where a, an, when you're an adult, some of the blockage comes from. Like people tend to get more uptight about trying yeah. new things. Yeah. yeah, and the, the ego comes in, and there was a great quote, um, oh, I can't remember what it was, it was like a, yes, it was a kind of poem quote, that, this guy, Neil Gaiman, and um, it was about, make as many mistakes as you can this year, because if you're making mistakes, that means you're reaching for something higher than usual, than, you know, and it's like, make lots of mistakes. Such a good way yeah. to live. Yeah. Because people can be, really beat themselves up. Oh, I did this wrong, or I'm embarrassed, yeah. or... Yeah. Yeah. But who knows what wrong is, you know? It just might turn out that actually that was right, and that meant that that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. So we've spoken a little bit about the book that you wrote. Um, it's not only rock and roll. And you interviewed some beyond incredible musicians for that book how Mm -hmm. long was that process gosh um see it was a phd dissertation to begin with and um so that took you know it's time there and then before i'd quite finished it i knew that this should be a book and um and that i just needed to get a whole lot more musicians more than i thought because it was going to be taking the next step and i've got uh, i got an agent and um and so then i interviewed more musicians more of the thought of i finished the dissertation but uh, carried on with the book and got a lot more musicians that i interviewed and um what was your question just how long the process took was oh, yeah. it, a couple yeah, of years. Yeah, so then there was there were two like two bits. Once I'd actually interviewed everybody, I would say it was probably over about two three years, starting with starting with it being like the dissertation, you know, the kind of birth of it. That must have been such an incredible couple of years talking to so many. It was, and you know, I could have carried on with the interviews. I I loved interviewing them. And we'd be, you know, coffee houses or some of their homes or wherever. And it would just be like this little bubble that we'd get into. And, um, and it was brilliant. And so 
because it was, um, you know, I would studied uh, counseling psychology and I thought I was going to be a therapist. In the end, I didn't. But what that gave me was the ability to know when to keep quiet and when to come in, you know, because often in an interview there's a lull and uh, I think the interviewer always kind of will come in. But if you just give it like a little bit of space, and that seemed to happen quite a lot, and then they'd go deeper and then, uh, you know, they'd really sort of reveal a lot of truths about themselves. And uh, it was just the best. I loved doing those interviews. That's brilliant. That is such mm. brilliant advice. And we we could use that going forwards as well, thinking about it. Mm. It's so true mm. because it gives mm. that opportunity to go deeper. I wonder, right. you, you recorded those on tape, is that correct? I did. You still have copies I of kept those? the tapes, yeah. I kept the tapes for many, many years. But some of them were definitely tapes I would not want someone else to get their hands on. Yeah. So in the end, I actually destroyed a lot of them <clears throat> just because they'd all trusted in me and I never wanted to have betrayed that. And um, and I've only got now just a few, some of the sort of uh, few really, really ones that I thought were very special. And so I have them, you know, all these years later, and then I put them into MP3 as well. Are there any specific interviews or stories that were shared that really stand out to you? They were all, they were all fantastic. There were some people that were more eloquent in a way and were very able to describe their creative process. People like Michelle, um, Joni Mitchell, uh, who else? Don Henley, <clears throat> uh, Graham Nash, George, Eric. Very good. So. I mean, everyone was was a jewel, and everyone said some little thing that you could just kind of glean from it that was special. Did you know most of them before you interviewed them? I knew a lot of them. Some some were family, others because my second husband, Ian Wallace, um, he would play with different people like Crosby, Stills and Nash or Bonnie Raitt. um, uh, You know, so he knew all the musicians. And so, uh, so I knew, knew them all. They'd come and have dinner with us or whatever, you know. So, um, or I'd be on the road with them all. So I knew most of them. Yeah, I imagine you spent <coughs> so so much time with them as well, just because of who you surrounded yourself with and who you were married to, because well, you, yeah, you and Patty yeah, were both muse. Well, that's it. And the thing is, I believe they trusted me, you know, and the ones I didn't know, say like B.B. King or, um, I don't know, Willie Dixon, um, they would say, well, who else have you interviewed? And I could just, you know, put like put five names out there and they'd say yes immediately. But um, I think a lot of the musicians, because it's such a delicate thing and I didn't, wasn't even sure if they would be, you know, not willing to talk about the muse or peak experience. But I think they felt they trusted me because I'd been in that world for so many years. For sure. Um, So I think I had that sort of advantage. As Shanti just said, both you and your sister have both been muses, and you've both been present when inspiration has struck and seen a song kind of grow from this idea or like a chord into a number one hit on the radio. Were mm-hmm. were you always fascinated with how inspiration grows, or was it observing musicians in their element that really got you like very interested in the subject? So I suppose the 
first time I came across it was with Donovan, obviously, and, and him doing um, to me, Jennifer Juniper to me. And, um, and of course, you're, when you're young, and it's, it's like, gosh, so amazing to have a song sung about you and also what the song is actually saying. And I sort of felt quite shy. But as years went by, that always feels like that's my song, you know, and that's, that's sort of like a huge gift. Yeah, I don't think I felt so analytical until I actually started writing the book. I think it was so normal just to be hearing, you know, when, when we all lived together, Fleetwood Mac before we went to um, live in L.A., um, and just hearing everybody in the music room singing and finding words or struggling with words. or um, it, was, uh, it was just the sort of the norm, in a way. And it was only when I started really writing about it and then taking all those interviews and going through them and seeing what things were similar and what did they have in common that I became more just really attuned to what was going on. Fantastic. And it was fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. I love the idea of... Um you know, you were a model turned like this and, you know, writer. And then you went to school and you got um, a Ph.D. in the 80s. And now um, you're the founder and director of Spring Workshops. And we're just wondering um, if you could talk to us a little, a little bit about your life and your work with that and what that means to you. Yeah. Um, we were all... I'd say our family, pretty heavy drinkers, and um, it was very rock and roll as well. And um, but my brothers, I think, were pretty. You know, everybody drank to excess, so I was very aware of that. And um, when I started college, when I was whatever it was, thirty-five or thirty-five or something, um, that's when I realised. Now I've actually joined the grown-up world. It's like we'd been playing like a bunch of kids for all these years. And uh, that's when I stopped drinking and take, using and taking anything. But, um, but it wasn't as easy as that in as much as, well, it was great because I was at a college and it was quite alternative. And because I was studying psychology, you, you sort of wonder and you analyze what that was all about. Um, and so I was interested, and then uh, our, our younger sister, who actually is no longer with us now, you know, she had a big alcohol problem. And so I was very much attuned to all of that. And so once my um, book had come out and I'd done all the um, promotional stuff, and I thought, okay, now I've got to kind of get a job. And I got this job that was working at a treatment center in Arizona, and um, it had never occurred to me to do that. And all you needed, really, if you had a master's, then you, you, could, uh, you could work there. So I, w I went over there, and I spent a lot of time in this treatment center so I could really understand what it was all about. And I found it so inspiring, and I loved Tucson. And then at some point, I suggested taking this to England and seeing if we could actually set up something in England so, um, so I managed to come to England after 10 years, 10 years in L.A. And uh, I then um, 
went with another treatment center in Arizona, but then it started where I kept bringing people, therapists and psychiatrists, over from Tucson to meet the therapists and psychiatrists here in England. And I got something going where even the family program, I'd get the guy who does the family program bring it to England. So it was like setting up um, an outreach program. And, um, and I would t go over to Tucson to the treatment centers and bring some of the psychiatrists from the big treatment centers here to show them how it was done differently over there. And so I did that for years. And then I realized there were many people who really needed help but weren't, didn't have the money to go for a whole six weeks and maybe didn't need to go there. So then I set up, and this was my own um, thing, was set up spring workshops. And uh, that was for people, and I'd get the therapists from the States and bring them to England and do like two-day workshops on self-esteem or on um, healthy boundaries and, uh, you know, sort of relationship stuff. And basically, I think what I was doing, and I think one doesn't realize at the time what drives you to do things, I think what I was doing is setting up what I wished had been available for me at a particular time, um, you know, in the sort of rather crazy Fleetwood Mac days. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it's like I set it up for other people, and I think that in itself is very healing. Oh, yeah. That's so inspiring. It really is. Yeah. And you can really tell how much you care for other people setting this up. So I was curious, you you mentioned, you know, going to San Francisco and everything. Obviously, you enjoy traveling. Uh, was touring ever an element in your life? Well, the touring's tough because whether it's going by, um, you know, some, some bands just have like a coach and you've got the bunk beds on the coach or, or flying in their, in their own plane or different ways of touring. And... Um, I found it tough because, say, when I was married to Mick and I did a lot of touring, or, or, or Ian, actually, both of them, see, they, they wouldn't mind driving for miles or, you know, traveling for hours because at the end of the day, they got to do what they loved, which was play on stage, whereas I didn't. I didn't, I just went from one hotel to another hotel to another hotel to another hotel, and I would start climbing up the wall because, I mean, I love to listen to the music, but after a while it's like, well, what am I doing for me? Yeah, one so, road looks like every other road. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there was never really much time to go and do a little bit of sightseeing or anything like that. It was all about the gig. Everything was geared towards the gig. So I didn't, I didn't love that. Do you have any favorite traveling stories where it's not a tour and you actually got to enjoy looking around and experiencing? Yeah, yeah. I um, Well, I, I, I did a trip to Nepal 20-something um, years ago, and that was the most magical, incredible trip. And it was like a, a hike up in, the, um, up in the Himalayas. And um, that was very special. Then... Uh, I'm actually, we're going to um, Sri Lanka in a couple of weeks, which I've never been to before. And that's, I'm sure, going to be really special and incredible. Okay. And then every year I go and see um, my kids and grandchildren go to L.A. or, my, or go to Canada for a bit this year. Ooh. 
and, let us know uh, if you're in Toronto. Like, no, no, we're going to go to Vancouver. And oh, of course. Yeah, there. that's where we should go. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I love traveling, and I love, and I love being at home, too. Yeah, what do you like most about living in London? Hmm, good question. I don't know sometimes. Because I do love nature. But um, we have a cottage sort of up like a couple of hours north of London, um, which is very secluded and right in um, just a small little walk and you're in the woodlands and fields all around, can't see another house. So we're lucky in that way. You know, we have a little, a little apartment in, that, in the centre of London, um, but I think I would find that difficult if I didn't. I mean, I do take the dog to the parks, but... Um, I very I crave nature as well, but I suppose the thing with London is, you know, a lot of my friends live in London. Lots of great things to do, and um, everything's here. I've travelled there quite a bit because I have a musician friend who lives there, and I met mm-hmm. her in Nepal almost three years ago. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, it was, a ma- um, it was one of the most magical things that's ever that I've ever experienced. Nepal. Yep. Yes, yes, it is magical. Yeah. And what did you think of London? I had a great time. Um, My friend is based in Camden Town, and Uh she's a musician, and she's fantastic. And so she brought me around busking here and there, and she brought me to a couple Uh of her gigs. So really, I just got to tag along and go out and walk around, and I loved it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. I like how you mentioned, you know, your your little cottage. You can bring the dogs for a walk. So it seems that you have, you know, you an anonymity of a kind, and you can have a fairly secluded life. Even though you you were actually on a podcast called Rock and Roll Nobility, that was their episode, which is appropriate because. So you, how did you find that? I have no idea because you're the only second podcast I've done. And I had and how do you how does one find these podcasts? Oh, we're millennials. <laughs> we oh, just, you're millennials. Okay. You know, just you type type here there a little bit of research and oh, then it I pops see. up. So really, if you just right. if you just type your name into yeah. um, Apple Podcasts, the two yeah. things that come up are the episode that we've done and that uh, that um, interview you did, and then a girl yeah. named uh, Jenny Boyd who is an actress from Pretty Little Liars, <laughs> which uh-huh. I didn't know. <laughs> Right. You're the only Jenny Boyd that I know. So, yeah, that's how oh, I found, we found it, and I listened to it a, a little bit. But it's funny that that's what the episode was called because it's true. You've you've had relationships that are exclusive as they can get, you know, to rock yeah. and roll royalty. Yeah. And you've known personally the greatest minds and artists but who have been touched by mass celebrity. But you've been able to maintain your own sense of, I guess... Yeah. yeah. So you kind of, I think that's kind of the place to be, right? Like you can yeah. have all of these same experiences, but at the end of the day, when you go out, I'm assuming it, you can keep a sense of privacy. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yes. That's yeah. a really special position to be in because I can't imagine what life on that mass celebrity level would be like. No, what would prison, I want? It? I would think. Yeah. Do you? Um, still? I've been reading this in the Michelle Obama book recently, and um, and she was uh, talking about what it was like when they first moved to the White House, 
and just having to even they couldn't even go out on the balcony without the you know streets being closed off and you know and how tough that must be I, mm. I imagine when the Beatles were at their height too just going anywhere must have been unbelievable yeah 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 no sort of like a madness it's interesting how people are like so attracted to fame and talent and it it is like a hysteria of sorts yes and what is that and has that happened before i mean i know elvis presley a lot of hysteria but with the beatles there's never been anything like that before mm-hmm. and to be that young and to go through it too that yeah i can't even yeah. imagine and have people from all ages, you know, even the old grannies, you know, just sort of, uh, they're all, think um, they're wonderful. Yeah. I mean, to actually write across the, the world, really, write across the ages, and yeah, extraordinary. This has been such a wonderful experience, and as we're wrapping this up, uh, our conversation with you, Jenny, um, is there anything that we missed? Oops. Okay, that's it. Anything that you miss? Anything, um, yeah, that you'd like to that you'd like to talk about? Anything else that you'd like um, people listening to know? Any questions that you'd like to be asked? No, I think I would like to say because today feels the first day. If I really know that uh, this book will come out sometime this year, <sighs> to um, I don't know, look out for it. <laughs> We're so excited and, uh, to read it. And when it comes out, you're going to have to come back on the podcast and we can talk more about it. I would love to. And I really enjoyed this, both of you. And and thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited for this book. I know. it's it's, Well, you'll you'll see on the Instagram page. (laughs) We'll keep checking. And, um, (laughs) yeah, that's fantastic. So good luck. I mean, yeah, good luck. And congratulations on getting this book up and going. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's really a dream come true when something like this can happen. And if you do a book tour for your book, then we're going to – we've been, you know – putting our little stuff here and there in our piggy bank because we hope to be doing some traveling as well this coming year together. Fantastic. Lovely. Well, I hope you both have a wonderful year, 2019, and it was a pleasure speaking to you both. Thank you so much from the bottom of our heart. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. Yeah, you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.